I'm Helen Clark, former New Zealand Prime Minister and former Administrator of the United Nations Development Programme. Helen Clark is a pivotal leader of our times who is exercising her stateswomanship against COVID-19, the greatest threat to peace and security. She wants countries and communities to go hard and forward together. But I ask, will they? I'm James Chow. Helen Clark, welcome to the China Current. Let's talk about what's happening now in this COVID world. People are dying, people are losing their jobs, people are being abused at home, people have no homes, people are not getting educated. And when you look at this as a whole package, people are facing the greatest threat in modern peacetime history. If we have all of this, all at the same time, why aren't we shocked into more international action? I think many people are shocked by the flat-footed response uh, of the international community. Let's accept from that the World Health Organization, which has been on the case from the time it was uh, first aware uh, of the virus and has really tried to give a global leadership on it, but not enough countries have been listening to it, nor learning the lessons from those who did Uh, move very fast to uh, contain the spread of the virus and then work to eliminate it. But at the geopolitical level, at our UN Security Council, for example, it's all geopolitics. And as I understand it, early discussion descended into a blame game with with name calling. That's not constructive to getting a resolution. Uh, Fortunately, in the meeting last week where the Security Council did discuss issues, albeit mostly related to the UN itself, I thought the tone of the statements from permanent members was more positive. And so I don't rule out that at some point we might get a decent resolution from the Security Council. But what I'm looking for is for it to use the Ebola precedent from 2014 and declare the pandemic what it is, a threat to global peace and security. This has gone far beyond being a health issue. This is a global health and economic crisis with profound social implications, like nothing we've seen, as you say, in more than a century. You seem to be describing incremental improvements in the tone and urgency of countries here. Let's talk about Ebola because that's been described as a threat to international peace. So was HIV and AIDS many more years before that in the year 2000. I mean, what's stopping the UN Security Council from adopting a resolution on COVID-19? Essentially, we have uh, less multilateralism and we have a US administration, which is nothing like as serious about the international system as its predecessor administrations have been. In 2014, uh, President Obama took on the challenge of Ebola as a crusade. The United States was incredibly supportive of a resolution going through the Security Council. Uh, As I say, I was encouraged by the more constructive tone of statements last week. And I really hope that those who are drafting resolutions and that activity is going on in New York as we speak, will be able to produce something that's serious. Because if the Security Council pronounces like that and calls on all member states to step up, 
that has weight. Now, of course, there's the other set of international players, uh, the G20, uh, for example. And I was uh, part of the initiative coordinated by former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Gordon Brown, to write to the G20 uh, leaders. I am hopeful uh, that in the course of this week we're in now, with the G20 finance ministers' meetings and the IMF and World Bank spring meetings, which are all virtual, that there will be some news that's positive for developing countries who badly need support. But again, I need to put a caveat on that because some of the signals are that the conditionalities on the support that poor countries are going to need could be quite serious. And this is not a time for severe conditionalities and telling people to you know, prune their budgets. This is a time for coming in and underwriting economies which will be knocked over uh, by the pandemic. Whether or not the virus spreads in the country, which there's a reasonable chance it will spread everywhere anyway, uh, but because of what has happened uh, to a country's export earnings, uh, for example, uh, the need for oil dropping away, certain minerals dropping away and so on. Well, you've always been ahead of the game in more ways than one. Right now, you're over at your home in Auckland, four hours ahead of me in Hong Kong, 16 hours ahead of New York and Washington. If we look at the whole picture and we look at the G20, whereas you said you mobilized the key support for former Prime Minister Gordon Brown on that, COVID-19 is going to cost the world a trillion dollars. About one and a quarter billion people on top of that are either going to lose their jobs or see a cut in their incomes. What are we now looking at? Because you've given them a deadline of a few days to respond. Have they responded? So from its virtual meeting on the 26th of March, the G20 leaders did ask officials to go away and work on uh, plans, uh, which included uh, doing things on debt relief and some money for developing countries. So I'm, as I say, uh, quasi-optimistic that something positive will come out of the meetings being hosted out of the institutions in Washington, D.C. this week. But it's a question of what the tags on them are. We can't be too tough on developing countries which are extremely poor. And as you rightly say, uh, we are facing severe social implications if countries are forced into a situation where they're poorest. And we're seeing this on our TVs. Uh, the poorest are saying, I'm going to die of hunger here before I die of COVID-19. So global social protection to underwrite the, the food uh, to put on the family for the poorest becomes extremely social. That's very important. I have to tell you, right outside my window here in Hong Kong, people are lining up for free food because in many cases, an entire household has lost their entire ways of earning, be it a salary or being at a wage. Actually, Helen Clark, I took my cue from you. I saw from one of your tweets that while the health aspect is now very clear to everybody. You talk about the social and economic dimensions. So let's break that down. The Global Preparedness Monitoring Board is an independent body that tracks the progress and accountability of governments in meeting that next health emergency. That next health emergency is already here. So what they're saying is that we need $8 billion, 
a lot of money and not a lot of money. A billion that will go to WHO, uh, two billion for therapeutics, three billion for vaccines. If you look at the numbers, eight billion dollars versus a trillion dollar cost to the entire global economy. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Oh, absolutely. That that's a bargain deal. That's the that's the petty cash. Uh, uh, really, and and let's hope that that can be stumped up. That board, by the way, was created as a reaction, uh, as I understand it, to to Ebola, uh, so that people could be more prepared. Look, we need standing mechanisms in place uh, globally, uh, which are empowered to act and get support very quickly when these extraordinary circumstances arise, and they will keep arising. This is the sixth. Uh, global health emergency declared by the WHO since 2003. On average, these are rolling around every three years. Why should we be surprised? Why should the global community be flat-footed? Uh, I've picked up on Dr. David Nabarro's recommendation that there should be a pandemic emergency coordination council uh, convened. I think it should have standing capacity. I think it needs to be brought together by the UN Secretary General. It should have uh, alongside him, the WHO Director General, Dr. Tedros, and the heads of the IMF and the World Bank. These are very powerful positions and convening platforms. And if that group says, here's what we need, and if they'd been saying that, you know, a, a solid two months ago, I think we'd be in a very different position from where we are today. I mean, people are talking about the waste at the UN and at WHO. Of course, improvements can always be made. But I think I read it in an American op-ed the other day that WHO is, in fact, run on a smaller budget than some major U.S. hospitals. Yeah, the, the WHO funding is, is very poor. Uh, I was aware of that when I was at uh, UNDP. And, uh, of course, it got very much criticised for the initial response to Ebola in West Africa in uh, 2014. But in a sense, you get what you pay for. It, it had uh, actually downgraded, as I understand, its preparedness prior to that because it had so many uh, financial issues. Now, out of Ebola, the WHO did a complete review and, and revamp of pandemic preparedness. And I believe we've seen that on display. But you then need funding to put the plan into operation. And their appeals were really uh, going largely unheeded when they uh, requested funds. When the World Health Organization comes under fire, so does the entire United Nations family, and that's every single one of us. And of course, its mandate to secure a future for humanity. I mean, you served as a prime minister of one member state, and you served as head of an entire UN agency. Are these attacks just words that we just let go by, or is it much heavier than that? I think it's much heavier. And the International institutions have been what we call an, an Aunt Sally that things are thrown at uh, for years. I remember when it was announced in New Zealand that I would be going in April 2009 to head the United Nations Development Program. Immediately, you got the you know the talkback hosts and tabloid type uh, journalists saying the UN's corrupt, everything you know, waste of money and so on. I mean, that has been the narrative that's come. Uh, out of certain media who pump that theme all the time. That's why I've gone into full-blooded uh, defence mode of the role of WHO in this. Without WHO, where would we be? We have to support these institutions. Of course, 
no one gets everything right 100% of the time. That's to be expected. But for a decent, honest effort, I truly think they've done their best. Could you make that clear? You said without WHO, without the UN, where would we be? So my question back to you would be, where would we be? We would be in a situation where there was no capacity whatsoever to gear up global coordination. Now, the WHO has done what it can with its health mandate, but this has become much bigger than health. This is a full-blown economic and social crisis. Even here in New Zealand, our food banks are seeing unprecedented demand, and our government here is basically uh, underwriting the salaries of a million people. We've got a population of under 5 million. Uh, We're underwriting companies, wages, uh, cultural organisations, everyone who's been knocked over by the complete lockout and stoppable non-essential economic and and other activities. Uh, So I know how costly this is. So what I want the UN institutions like the Security Council with its powerful mandate to do is to step up to this crisis, use the power they've got to send signals that we need globally coordinated action urgently because otherwise we are going to stand by and see this pandemic sweep as it did through parts of China and and East Asia, sweep through Europe, sweep through the USA, Latin America and begin to reach the poorest and the most marginalised in sub-Saharan Africa and other uh, poor countries like Afghanistan, where the results would be horrible. So we have to do everything we can to try to avert this, but we can't do it without that globally coordinated action. Let's look at the world today. I call it finger-pointing, you call it name-calling, which sounds more like a playground mentality rather than the hallowed halls of governance and international community. We've been hearing people say it's a Chinese virus or Wuhan virus. Is that racism? I'm always very reluctant to throw around a term like racism. Uh, It is clearly highly pejorative. And I think it's also basically uh, geopolitics playing out where one side uh, uh, is abusing uh, another. Uh, So it's unhelpful, and we may well have got uh, a resolution out of the Security Council at an earlier point if there hadn't been uh, attempts to to name the virus after where it first uh, originated. So I I don't think any of that kind of name-calling is is helpful at all. It, It impedes the global response that we need. What would you say then to leaders and people in China. This is where the outbreak first came out in its full uh, form as we know it today. That also means that the first people to die were over in mainland China as well. They're looking potentially at second waves. They're being cautious about releasing and easing lockdowns. What, What would you do in that situation, not as a political leader, but as a humanitarian crisis, as this is all around the world? I remember when we were watching uh, this uh, pandemic uh, start to gain traction in in China in January, there were simply heartbreaking reports from China as to what was happening there. 
uh, with the deaths, uh, the, the serious illness, uh, everybody locked down. And in a way, it's amazing to me that uh, in G7 countries and the rest of the world, everyone's kind of watched and said, look what's happening in China and didn't think this could be me. You know, so, so we have to think of this as something that has, has touched families across regions, ethnicities, beliefs, cultures uh, around our world. So I guess uh, looking at the situation China's in now, where it had a very effective response to the, the first uh, round of it eventually, I'm mindful that Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada has warned his people uh, that the virus there will probably peak late spring, early summer, but they should be prepared for a second wave uh, in the latter part of the year and a third wave. And he says, we're going to have to fight this for a year. So I guess the message to China, and it doesn't need to hear it from me, is just stay the course. I think China has the public health capacity to swarm in around any outbreak where it occurs. And that will be our uh, approach in New Zealand. We, we can get down to elimination now, but we have to have a capacity to swarm if anything comes in undetected. It's unlikely because we're now quarantining all uh, visitors. But, you know, what if we have to have a capacity to move wherever it pops up? I'm not saying this to you because you're a former Prime Minister of New Zealand, but New Zealand is a global example of the go-hard, go-early approach that you advocate. Norway is another country as well. Didn't wait for the outbreak to arrive on its doorsteps, saw what was happening, just put the foot down and said, this is what we're going to do. Clearly there was a plan in place and your Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has made that happen. But is there still time for governments that have more, be more creative, experimenting with their approaches, experimenting perhaps with the futures of their own people. So two points there. We must always learn from pandemic experiences. I was prime minister in 2003 when the SARS pandemic was declared. And when we reviewed our response to that, we eventually brought to our parliament and had passed legislation for epidemic preparedness. And it's that legislation that Jacinda Ardern and government have been able to you know, pull off the shelves and use now. It's got all the powers that are needed uh, to respond effectively to a, a pandemic. And yes, New Zealand did go hard and early. Uh, we're cautiously optimistic now of elimination, but we need the rest of the world also to be in that position to enable normal links between people, tourism, student exchanges, family uh, visits, and so on to resume. And that's not going to be any time soon. What I would say to countries in the middle of the storm right now is you, you may have missed the, the go hard, go early. You must still go hard. What does Dr. Tedros, the Director General of WHO, say day after day till he's hoarse? He says, test, test, test. You must test, test, test. You must know where this disease is. You must be able to swarm in around the clusters of, of disease, contain and isolate people. So test, 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 very hard would be my advice. Well, both you and Jacinda Ardern are respected for being strong political leaders. But the fact is, and the sad fact is, is that you are both examples of the few elected women 
in political office around the world. We both serve an organization called Global Health 5050. So I want to tap into your experience and your insight on this. When you stepped down as the head of the United Nations Development Program, you said that you were shocked that older people and older women were being made to feel invisible. And yet now, look at where we're at. We're living in a time of COVID-19 where older people are being talked about in terms of using up ventilators and taking up hospital beds. Is this going to make them feel even more visible than they already were? Oh, I I think some of the commentary has got into very, very uh, ethically uh, questionable territory. And by that, I mean uh, that there are voices who say, look, it's only going to kill a few old people, quote, unquote, and we can't lock down because it will affect the economy. They are so wrong. Firstly, no one wants to die before their time is up. Uh, Secondly, the evidence is that if you bungle the public health response, uh, you're not going to be able to confine uh, the effects to, quote, those few old people. And I speak as someone in the older demographic. You're going to wreck your economy. Uh, So uh, we have to see us all as being in this together. We have to fight it. It is the greatest threat to our older people. All the nine deaths in New Zealand have been of people in the 70-plus age group because, tragically, here it did get into some of the old old people's homes. Uh, We have to fight it because it is killing the old, it is killing the health compromise, but we're also seeing reports of it killing from small babies to teenagers to people in the prime of their working lives. It is a threat to all of us, and we do not know which of us would be vulnerable to the worst impact of it, which is death. And as someone who is neither younger nor older, but somewhere in the middle, I'll always say that while young people should be given the platform that they have earned, there is no substitute for the wisdom that comes from the experience that our elders carry for us, especially at this critical moment. Uh, You're an example of experience because you were one of the prime architects of the sustainable development goals as it was shaped into what it is today. 17 goals, hundreds of targets, all to help deliver a more equal, a fairer world at its simplest. And to make sure that no one is left behind and no one is left even further behind. Now with COVID-19, you're a straight talker. Do you really think that we can reasonably deliver on those promises because we've had this curveball thrown at us from the side? Oh, it's going to be extremely difficult. As it was, uh, we were, as a global community, well behind where we needed to be to meet those ambitious goals. Eradication of extreme poverty and hunger, most definitely not on track for that before the pandemic. Some of the worst estimates were that 6% of the world's population would still be in extreme poverty by 2030. You could probably put a ring around that and more if this pandemic isn't quelled uh, pretty uh, quickly, which there's not a sign of at the moment. That's why I keep calling for urgent globally coordinated action to stop the, the, the worst happening. So let's not mince words. This pandemic is a huge blow to hopes of achieving the SDGs. And that needs to be cause for profound reflection uh, by all countries as they consider their responses from here on in. 
I really wanted to speak to you today because you bring in all the different thinking and you help unpack what that means to us as people. Clearly, COVID-19 is deepening the inequities that already plague our society. If we can't rely on our national leaders, then what should we do as individuals? And more so, are we now being called on? Is this a moment for us to transform our politics? Well, firstly, I see opportunities for leadership on this at every level of society. What I felt really humbled by when I went to the three West African countries devastated by Ebola in 2014 was going down to the poorest communities you will find anywhere in the world and seeing how those communities had mobilized to keep Ebola out of their community. I remember one uh, informal settlement that kind of fell down a cliff off the main road down to the sea in Freetown, Sierra Leone. That community blocked every single pathway and bit of ocean access. They would not let anybody's relative from anywhere else enter it. They kept Ebola out. I know we can win this battle if communities are empowered, engaged, and understand what needs to be done. So even if the leaders of your countries don't get it, in your community, you can make a difference. I'd like to finish off with this, if I may, because we're interested in Helen Clark, the person, not only Helen Clark, the former head of government, former head of UN agency, the prolific social media. And as I just found out before this interview, I didn't know that you were on Snapchat and Instagram as well as Twitter. Uh, clearly, you, you capture so many emotions and you connect to people in different ways. So in closing, can you just tell us about how you are. You are one of the 7.8 billion in our world. And you're in Auckland with Professor Bayard Davis. How is life for you both now? Life's quite different because I'm very internationally engaged. So in the normal course of events, I'm off somewhere else. This is really the first time in probably 20 years since before I was Prime Minister that I've had a chance to enjoy my home uh, walk around my neighbourhood, uh, take photos for Instagram story and Snapchat and Facebook story and uh, really zone in on this issue, and which, which is the most compelling issue of our times. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. My father's 98. It, there's been nothing like it in his lifetime. The last pandemic of, of this kind was uh, to, uh, 1917-18. So it, it's really been a, a very interesting time to reflect uh, and to think about the, the, the way ahead and, and try to share information that will help the people who at least uh, follow what I say through the various social media and other platforms to get a, you know, a, a well-rounded understanding of what we're dealing with here. Well, we wish your father very well and we thank your family for gifting you to the world. Helen Clark, thank you very much. Thank you. The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media, at The China Current, and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you.